we're in a two-week series, um, so last week and this week, on the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the, or the longest recording of Jesus' preaching in one section, uh, as recorded in Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, no, no doubt, um, even if you are unfamiliar with much of Scripture, you've heard snippets from the Sermon on the Mount. It's infused into our culture in, in a lot of ways. He gives a lot of good advice for people on how to be good in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's so much more underlying what Jesus is speaking about and what Jesus is doing than just being good. There's so much more going on than, than weighing the scale of goodness and badness in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to something revolutionary, transformative, something that will change your life. And he does it in the Sermon on the Mount. That being said, today we're going to be in the same passages of Scripture that we were last week. Um, as Stephen recited them last week and pulled out these objects, this week we'll go over some of them again and maybe flesh out some of this together. Maybe some of these pictures and images will become a little bit clearer as they were happening. Perhaps it was a bit foggy. Or perhaps you missed last week. Or perhaps you were serving upstairs like I was in uh, the children's church. Whatever the reason, today we'll unpack some of it. So feel free to turn in your iPads, your phones, your Bibles, whatever have you, to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, starting in chapters 5 through chapter 7. And actually, the first place we'll read today is out of chapter 7. So if you want to turn to chapter 7. But last week, Stephen left us in a pretty jarring place with the breaking of a home. With the destruction of really almost everything we work for in American life. Everything that's embodied in a home, a family, financial security, independence. And Jesus ended his sermon that way. With the destruction of the home for a foolish man. But the promise of a wise man who builds his house on the rock and how it will endure the winds and the storms. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse 24, I want us to, to go over this again and see where we were at. Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the storms rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. The end. That's a jarring way to end a sermon. We don't do that in the 21st century American Church's Day. We don't end sermons on negative notes. We end them on positive notes. We want you to feel good when you leave. But Jesus is speaking to a harsh reality here. He's saying, listen to what I am saying. There's a reason he's saying it. He's not saying it just to, like I said, weigh the good versus the bad. There's something so much more at stake here. 
Matthew, um, the gospel writer, offers a couple framing sentences right after that. Verses 28 and 29. Right after Jesus talks about the house crashing, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he had taught as one who had authority, and not as the teachers of the law. What a weird paradigm Jesus sets up there. The one who has authority is not the one who teaches the law. The one who has authority is not the one who knows these by heart. Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as a teacher of the law. And it's even more of an interesting phrase and way to set this up if you understand the context of what Matthew was writing his gospel for. Matthew was a, was a Jewish tax collector. And his whole purpose of writing the story was to write to Jewish people. To say, you need to hear about this Jesus guy. And so much of what Matthew writes about in his gospel is directed towards the Jewish people in a unique, cultural, connected way. Slightly different from the other three gospels of Mark, Luke, and John, who all also had their own kind of intentions and focuses. Matthew was very focused on writing to the Jewish people. And, and by saying this, he really makes as abrupt of a statement at the end of this chapter as Jesus made at the end of his sermon. He said, everything you've learned since you were a little child doesn't mean anything if you ignore this. Everything you learned about what is good and right and wrong means nothing if you are not hearing what Jesus is saying now. Because for the Jewish people, there was nothing more holy than the Ten Commandments. There was no one more righteous than the teachers of the law. There was no one who was better, more suited to teach and train and educate, no one more respected in culture than those who knew the Ten Commandments, who taught the Ten Commandments, and taught others to follow them. And Matthew says, Jesus taught as one who had authority, not like those guys, meaning they don't have authority. Jesus has authority. Well, where does Jesus' authority come from? I mean, we're, we're looking back now, looking back 2,000 years on it, and, and we, if we're familiar with Jesus and, and the Christianity uh, conversation, we, we can frame that up, but put yourself in that first century. Here comes a guy on the scene who nobody knows anything about. Here's this guy. He says he's Jesus. He's talking about being the son of God. He's doing all his miracles. He's got people following him. What gives him the right? Who's this guy? Why does he get to make the rules? Why is he the one who we should listen to? To understand that, we've, we've got to go back a little bit earlier into Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. Jesus hadn't even started his ministry yet at this point. In Matthew chapter 3, um, we get pretty much what happens in, in the Gospel of Matthew is, is we get the birth story of Jesus right at the beginning. We get the whole Christmas story. And chapter 2 kind of frames up the Christmas story. The Magi come and visit him, and we're still baby Jesus. And then from chapter 2 to chapter 3, we fast forward like 30 years. All of a sudden, Jesus isn't a, a baby anymore. In fact, he's not even a kid or a teenager or a young— well, maybe young adult, depending on how you frame that. He's a young adult now. 
He's grown. He's matured. We, we fast forward all the way. And Jesus now comes to his cousin, John the Baptist, to be baptized. Not because Jesus needed the baptism, but because he was showing us something that we ought to do. Because everything in Jesus' life was a model for us. And so, John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Verse 17. This voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God placed the authority on Jesus. That authority we're talking about in chapter 7, at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, who gives Jesus the right? What gives Jesus the authority? God did. Jesus being the Son of God, being God in his very nature, it's God that gives him the authority. Where we're comparing the teachers of the law and Jesus who had authority, we're comparing people who make mistakes, who live in error, who sin, who have problems, to the Almighty God. Jesus has the authority. So when we look back on all of this, Everything that he said, these aren't negotiables. They're not statements of, I like that, but I don't like that. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not a la carte. When Jesus speaks, he speaks. And his authority means that we ought to listen. God placed the authority on Jesus. Much of what Jesus talks about throughout chapters 5 and 7 is all about who we are to be because of who he is. Let me say that again. Chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew, is all about who we are to be because of who God is. It's in response to God. Really, for me, and like I said, I was upstairs last week, so if you missed last week and you're jumping into this like I am, I, I kind of had to go back through and try to recreate what happened here on Sunday morning. I know some of you were here and you witnessed it firsthand and you saw Stephen pulling stuff out and, and reading signs and, and you got to witness that. And so I had to go back and kind of recreate. And as I came in here on, I think it was Monday morning, I kind of sat one of these pews somewhere here, kind of towards the front, and I kind of just assessed for a second what's going on here what does all this mean what's jesus trying to get at and i think what stood out to me the most as i'm thinking about the sermon on the mount as a whole what's jesus trying to get at is those words that we have hanging on the wire right up there be 
holy. But that comes with so much baggage. Because we don't treat holiness oftentimes the way it ought to be treated. We'll unpack that more here in a minute. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're jumping around a little bit, but I promise it'll make a little bit more sense as we're going through it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his sons to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love these, or those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a statement. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who in here is perfect? In the name of Jesus. That's what be holy is all about. Where you see perfect here, we can insert be holy. God's calling us into something bigger than us. In fact, I was beginning to think about this on uh, last week, and I was having a conversation about this concept of holiness with somebody. And if, if you're familiar with the Church of the Nazarene denomination, if, if maybe you've grown up in it or you've been around it a long time in your life, you know that holiness is one of our buzzwords. We get all amped up on, on holiness. We just love it because it's what distinguishes us. It makes us different than everybody else. But we don't always treat it, like I said, the way it ought to be treated. We sometimes make it something other than what it really is. We make holiness good versus bad. We make holiness about as long as I'm doing more of the good stuff and I'm more good tomorrow than I was yesterday, then, then I'm holier than I was before. But the truth is holiness is not about us. Holiness is about God. And, and this person I was talking to this last week about it said this. Holiness is not an action you do. It is what God has done in you. I was like, wow. That came out of nowhere. That, that hit me, like right across the head. And I was like, that is, that's right. Holiness is not an action you do. We treat it that way all the time. We think, man, I've got to be holy, so I've got to do good stuff. But holiness is not about you. It's about what God has done in you. God makes us holy. That's what God does. We can't make ourselves holy. We can never weigh these scales in our favor. We can never have more good than bad. We can't do it. But God can do it. And he's done it before, and he'll do it again, and he's doing it for all of eternity. God is making us good, like we were intended to be. Holiness is not an action you do. It is what God has done in you. 
It is a call to be different from the world. Set apart for a different task, a different purpose. It's a call to look different, to be different, to have a different purpose. It's a call to be salt and light. It's a call to abandon self in favor of God. If we can't be holy by ourselves, then we need to get out of the way and let God do it. Culture's given us a twisted view of this perfectionism as well. When you hear the word perfect, like when I asked you to raise your hand who in here was perfect, we think of this unattainable, unmatched, impossible standard. But perfection means you fulfill the purpose that you're called to have. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't make mistakes along the way. It means that you fulfill the purpose that you're supposed to have. God's called you to something, and you're doing it. Let me illustrate it this way. So you know, I always have to pull something superhero-related out when I preach. I've got two comic books here. And some of you might say, well, the difference here between these two is, is uh, one's DC Comics. We've got Batman over here. We've got Incredible Hulk over here. That's Marvel Comics. So there, there are two different worlds there. Well, that's not the point I'm illustrating here. The point I'm illustrating here is the condition that these books are in. Now, some of you can't see it because you're, you're a ways away, but, but let me illustrate this a little bit. So if you've seen any of those shows before... Um, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Pawn Stars, Antique Roadshow, anything that somebody's trying to sell something and they always have to call somebody in to get it appraised and see how much it's worth. And, and they're always looking all over it and they're like, oh, it's got a little nick right here or, or it's got a little blemish here or that's not an original piece. That was, somebody fixed it and put that in there later. So that hurts the cost of it. Same is true for comic book collectors. There's a grading scale for comic books. 10 being the best, 10 being perfect, mint condition, straight off the shelf, Never been opened, because as soon as you open a book, the bending gets creased, and now it's not perfect anymore. So, 10 being the best, and 1 being the worst. 1 being something with frayed edges, bent corners, maybe some snags and tears. But the funny thing is, is that the words that they use for the comic book grading scale are not perfect or imperfect. Because for a comic book collector, they understand that a 1 has the same function as a 10. This is not a 10. This is like a 7. But you can't tell the difference from here. A 1 has the same function as a 10 because a 1 still has to have all the pages intact. The story is still there. You're not missing something critical about what happens. You're not missing something about what kind of adventure the Incredible Hulk got on, or how he stopped the bad guy. A one serves the exact same purpose as a 10. But, depending on what your standard is, if you're looking for financial gain, it's not as valuable. Jesus is calling us to change our paradigm of the way that we interact with the world and the way that we understand our function in the world. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're a 10 on the holiness scale. You never make any mistakes. You're a perfect person. 
You always love thy neighbor. You always love God. You never say a bad word. So on and so forth. Or if you're a one and you don't really like your neighbor and you say a lot of bad words and so on and so forth. If you are fulfilling God's purpose for your life, you are a holy person. If you are fulfilling God's purpose for your life, you are a holy person. If God has redeemed you, if you've asked Jesus to be your Savior, you are holy. You are different. You are, as Romans says, a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, does this mean we stay there? Does this mean that if we're a one, we might not want to move forward a little bit? Well, no, absolutely not. You know, as Paul says, do we keep on sinning so that grace abounds, so that God will continue to love us more? He says, absolutely not. We don't keep sinning just because we want to stretch how far God's going to love us. But we love God. And we're a holy person because of what God has done, not because of what we have done. And I think some of us need to hear that in this room today. I think most of us in this room would be uncomfortable if I called you a saint. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. Not recognized by the, the Roman Catholic Church not recognized by the institution. I understand that. There's, there's a whole other conversation there. But if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint, not because of what you have done, not because of who you are, how good you are, how much money you give to the church, but because of who God is. God has called you that. God has made you that. And it's hard to accept that sometimes. It's hard for us to allow that to be so for God to live that way into our lives. Being salt, light, and yeast are all a part of being holy, serving a different purpose. We might be the same place as other people. We might be doing the same thing as other people, but we're doing a whole other purpose behind it. We might go to a basketball game the same way as other people go to a basketball game. But there's something else that we're on mission for there as a witness to who Jesus is and what he has done, not how good I am or what I've done. If you're fulfilling God's purpose, you are perfect and you are holy. Now take the reverse of that. If you're not fulfilling God's purpose, let's fix it. Start fulfilling his purpose. If you're fulfilling God's purpose, you are perfect and holy, even if you are not where you want to be yet. We've got goals, right? We all set goals for ourselves and, and ideas and things we want to achieve and, and places we want to be. And I mean, that was, that was the big thing come like college time. They're like, you know, set your five-year goals, 25-year goals. Where do you want to be? What kind of job do you want? What kind of career do you want to have? House, family, kids, what, what's, what's your standard of success look like? If our success is anything other than fulfilling God's purpose, we're missing the point. And that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount's for. 
That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount's about. I, don't, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. Getting excited. Go back with me a little bit, just earlier in chapter 5, to verse uh, 27. You've heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now last week, if you were here, Stephen in his recollection forgot to say these two verses. So this is one of the points he, he asked me to make sure I reiterate these, these verses here. Um, this is another bold statement that Jesus makes. And it's all about holiness. And it's all about being perfect. And now this might sound um, borderline offensive, but hear me. Some in our culture might think if someone does not have an arm or a leg or an eye, that they are not a perfect person. They're missing something, a, a part of their body. But Jesus' standard of perfection is not about the standards that we see, that we witness, that we build ourselves on. Jesus' standard of perfection is what are you doing and are you fulfilling God's call in your life? And so verse 29 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. This is not a place where this is an analogy or Jesus is, you've got to understand the context or anything. This is very point blankly, matter of fact statement. If you cannot live a life that you ought to be living, you are better off to remove whatever part of your body is causing you that problem. And maybe it's a physical part like this. Maybe it's your eye. Maybe it's your hand. But maybe it's something else. I, I had a professor in school who, um, who got a lot of flack from the class because everybody thought he was ridiculous. Um, but to this question, we were having a conversation about it one day in class. And he said one of his favorite TV shows um, was the Law and Order series. He watched all of them. Um, SVU and Crimes and whatever all the ones are. He's like, I just love those shows. Um, found them interesting. And he said, five, ten years ago, um, he's like, I just felt convicted. I felt like those shows were warping my perception of other people. That I'm watching these shows about criminals and I'm beginning to think about people in that way. And I think it's, this is what I said, I think it's not the way that God thinks about people. I think it's not the way that, that God is looking at those people. And so he said, I had to stop watching those shows. I loved those shows, but I had to stop watching them. Because they were changing the way that I was thinking and seeing the world around me. And it was warping it from what God wants me to see and what God wants me to think. And I'm not advocating that you stop watching a particular TV show today. 
or stop listening to a certain kind of music. I'm not advocating for behavior modification because that would just be a good versus bad. This isn't about good versus bad. This is about what is distracting you from God's purpose. What is keeping your eyes from seeing things the way that God sees them? And if it's a stumbling block, if it's a problem, you need to cut it out and get it out of the way. And that's what Jesus is communicating here in the Sermon on the Mount. Get it out. Cut it off. In no simple terms. Remove it by any expense. At any cost. If the things in your life do not align with the cross, then we aren't doing what we were created to do. If the things in our lives are not aligning with the cross, then they're not, we're not doing the things that we ought to do. If you were here last week, you remember that when we got to this portion in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Stephen had opened up this treasure chest, and inside there was all kinds of good stuff in here. All the stuff that we kind of, we work to promote, whether it's idols, whether it's yourself, whatever kind of standards. Maybe it's your car. You just love your car. Hits hard. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids are keeping you from loving God the way you ought to. Your family, love of money, your job. None of that stuff, well, idols conversation there, but the majority of that stuff is not intrinsically bad. Having a car is not bad. Having money is not bad. Having a family is not bad. Having kids isn't bad. None of this is wrong. But if this is your priority over this, you're missing the point. This needs to find its place. Center focus at the foot of the cross. If it's anywhere else, it's distracting you. We get distracted by things on the peripherals in life. We get distracted by stuff that buzzes past us, catches us off the corner of our eyes. If we want to maintain our relationship with God, we need to align ourselves and focus our sight in one spot. I don't lose sight of the cross by looking at my my treasure chest if it's there. But if that treasure chest is all the way over here, I can't look at both at the same time. I certainly can't focus on both at the same time. Align your life with Jesus. Being holy means that the things we have found value in must align themselves at the foot of the cross. They must be placed before the throne of God and not stored elsewhere. The way like a, a squirrel stores nuts in secret. They find some tree to hide in and they, they squirrel it away, right? That's the phrase, squirrel it away. Following God means, in some regard, everything's kind of out there. The things that I prioritize in life are all right there. I'm not keeping some of it over here for a rainy day. I'm not hiding some of it over here because I don't want people to know about it. The things that I find value in, the things that are important, the things that God finds value in 
are all aligned with me looking at the cross. Even good things can get in the way of what Jesus has for you if you do not offer them to God appropriately. Even good things can get in the way. Even good people can get in the way of your relationship with God. If you're not coming before the Lord with it, if you're not coming before the cross with it, as we're getting kind of close to the end here, um, I want to look at one more passage of Scripture. Because if we understand that holiness is what God has done, then what does that look like in our lives? If holiness is what God has done, and I can't measure it by doing more good stuff than bad stuff, well, what does that look like then? How do I know that I'm holy other than the fact that Matthew said we were holy on Sunday, but... What gives him the right to say that? Good point. Thanks for asking. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And we'll go through uh, verse 23 here. This is Jesus as he's getting close to the end here, right before his wise man and foolish man building the house. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Our fruit doesn't save us. Nowhere in this passage of Scripture does it say that producing good fruit is going to save you. But it says that the fruit is a byproduct of what the tree is. The tree is good, it produces good fruit. Or the tree is bad, it produces bad fruit. We know if a tree is bad, and if a tree is dead, that it actually doesn't produce any fruit, right? So, so think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you produce what you are. If you're good, you will produce good things. And long to produce good things. If you're bad, you'll produce bad things. And be indifferent towards it. Think, that's just the way it is. I can't help it. I'm only human. It is what it is. But if we truly believe what Jesus says, and if we truly believe that he's called us to be holy because God is holy, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because God has done it in us, then we are good. We are a good tree. You are a good tree. Therefore, what do you produce? Good fruit. It's not just a call for you to do. This is not an ask saying you must do this. This is the nature of what you are. 
Does that make sense? This is not a statement saying you have to do this. You've got to find a way. You've got to be strong enough and courageous enough and, and smart enough. And it's not about you doing. It's about what God has done. This is who you are. You are a good tree. And you produce good fruit. We're called to be holy. Because we are holy. We can't forget it. We can't take it for granted. We are called to be holy because we are holy. And if you believe in Jesus, you are a holy person. You are a saint. You are a good tree. Your life is changed. You are a new creation. And in all the good ways possible, who you were, who you were not, you are becoming. I had another conversation not that long ago with somebody here. And they were sharing about doing something and, and stepping out in faith. And, and they kept saying, that's not me. That, you know me. That's not me. I don't do that stuff. Like, it, it was a positive thing. It wasn't a negative thing. So it was, it was, it was uh, bold and forthright and moving forward. A, a growing kind of thing. And they're like, that's not me. You know that's not me. Uh, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not outgoing like that. I'm not, you know, adventurous like that. And these words came to me. You're a new creation. And if you're a new creation, who you are not, you are now becoming. You might not have been this person, but if God wants you to do it, he will make you that person. And you will become that person. Sometimes us adult folk think, well, I grew up, that's it, no more changes for me. I am what I am, life is what it is, and we're here. And now I just have to be as good as I can be and, and hope things work out for me in the end. God changes us all the time. God can rewire the, the ways we think about people, the ways we interact with others, the way we understand the world around us, and he's done it all the time because God's the one who makes us holy, not us. No one else can do the work for you. You have to decide whether your life is going to be aligned with Jesus or not. That's your choice. No one can make it for you, and no one's going to twist your arm and, and make you do it. If you want your life aligned with God, then align it and rest in the fact that he's called you a holy person. He's called you good. You might have a long time ago decided that having Jesus as your Savior is a good thing. Years ago, you said, ah, yeah. I remember it was at some VBS or uh, whatever, camp or whatever happened. And I was like, yep, I need Jesus as my Savior. And so I said, absolutely, I'll do it that day. Um, Life never really changed after that, though. Like, I, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is good and all that. And I believe he was the Son of God and died for our sins and rose again. And... But the way you've been living your life has been allowing your treasures to be over there and other things to be over here. And, and you're kind of trying to, every week, you're kind of trying to, like, align it. And you come here on Sunday morning and you're like, oh, yeah, there's Jesus, but I got all this stuff over here. 
And I got all this stuff over here. How do I, how do I get it together? How do I align it? You might have Jesus as your Savior, and we celebrate that. We really do. Because God's a mighty God, and he wants to save us. But there's another crucial part to it. Making Jesus your Lord will change your life, will transform your relationships. And your life will never be the same again. Jesus as Lord means your life today means so much more. Jesus as Savior means your life then is saved, but Jesus as Lord means your life today is so much sweeter. I don't want to just wait till then. I don't want to just wait till the end for eternity. I want my life to be better today. The only way to do that is have Jesus as Lord and Savior. Will you stand as, as I pray and close this this morning? Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to be a holy people. Thank you for making us a holy people. I believe with all my heart that the words of your scripture are true. That you are the one who makes us perfect. If we fulfill the things in our life that you have called us to do. Help us to do that this week, Lord. However big or however small. Maybe for somebody in this room, they really need to make that step of making you Lord this week. They really need to make some hard truths come to light. Have some hard conversations about the way they've lived in their lives. And maybe for others, it's nothing major, it's nothing extreme, but maybe it's just a couple things here or there. Maybe it's just acknowledging and accepting the fact that we're a holy people. Maybe it's just acknowledging the fact that I don't have to do it all. All this pressure that I put on myself. All this pressure that I have to perform and to be good and to, man, people are looking up to me and they respect me and they expect me to do certain things and to be a certain way. And God, may we remove that from our, our mind and our shoulders. May we rest in the holiness that we have because of you, not because of who we are or what we've done. God, as we leave this place, may your words echo in our minds. May you change the way we see the world around us. And may we be willing and excited and encouraged to spread the light wherever we can. Spread the light that you've placed in us wherever possible, wherever we go, whoever we interact with. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Now, to the Lord our God, who is able to do so much more than we've asked or we can even imagine. To him be the glory, the power forever and ever. Go in his peace today. We'll see you tonight at 5 for Encounter.